Once again, we will be reading Psalm 120, verses 1 through 6. A Song of Ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Thus says God's word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your your words that you've spoken to us are true. They are faithful. We can have confidence in them. And so, Lord, we, we come to you today as people who need to be fed from your word. We have tried to nourish ourselves on many things throughout the course of our lives, maybe even throughout the course of this last week. But, Lord, we've come to you today with empty hands, and we ask you to fill us, Lord, with the sustenance of your word. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you that your word is life, as you have said. We thank you that your word teaches us and shows us the way in which we should go. And so, Lord, we ask you now to to be here with us, to be close to us, to allow your spirit to give guidance to us in how to apply the word that we're about to hear. And Lord, as always, God, send grace to me as I stand here before your people and try to accurately present to them what you have written. Lord, I cannot do that without you. And so, Lord, I just, I just surrender myself. I surrender the, the people who will be uh, the hearers of this word today. I surrender them to you that you could work in us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you'll indulge me for just a second, I got to brag just a little bit. My scripture reader today, in just a very few months, will be my daughter-in-law. So we're pretty excited about that. Cameron, Cameron proved himself to be a man of exceptional intelligence by not letting that one get away. So we are, we are very happy to be anticipating that happy day. Uh, they, are, they are going to get married, it looks like right now, on January 1st. So they're going to start a new year with a new life. So, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think Eric and Leo might be a little bit happy about that too. So, I mean, we're, we're definitely getting the better deal out of the thing, but, you know, we're, we're happy nonetheless. Not really. We love Cameron for sure. So, well, um, I guess I better preach the word, huh? We better get into this. So uh, I also want to say real quickly thank you to Trevor uh, a couple weeks ago, my friend from Tahoka who preached the word, I was, I was able to listen to that message and also the one that Dave preached uh, last week. And man, I got to tell you, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for both those men, especially grateful for my partner in ministry, Pastor David. He just always just knocks it out of the park and he, he finished that series so well. Um, and so I'm grateful to you, Dave. Thank you for doing that. Today, we're going to begin a series a brand new series, and we're going back to the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at 15 psalms, 15 in a row, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, 
And these in, in the Bible, if you look at the heading of all 15 of those psalms, they're designated with the words songs of ascent. And um, these, the psalms, as you know, the, the, the book itself is God's guidebook for right worship in the church. Literally, the psalms are a songbook. Um, how wonderful would it be if we knew the tunes of all those songs and could hear the saints over the ages sing those songs. But what we do have is the lyrics. And what they do, the Psalms show us how to worship God properly. They show, they show us how to worship Him in a way that brings honor to Him and also unites the church. And they're critically, they're critical, absolutely critical for us to understand how to approach God. Now, some of you hearing that might not even understand what I'm saying. You think, well, to approach God, you just approach God. To, 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 you know, worship God, you just worship God. But I want to point out to you, and hopefully you've recognized this, that worship as a concept is one of the most misunderstood uh, areas of Christian life today. It, many Christians have no understanding of what worship truly is. An example of that is when you ask somebody, what is worship? For many, the answer is nothing more than worship is the music that precedes the preaching. But I want to try over the next 15 weeks to help you to understand that this, this idea of worship being the music we have in church or the music that precedes the preaching is only one aspect of worship and arguably, might blow your mind, but arguably not even close to the most important aspect of worship. Worship is something, it, it is, it is a, a, a posture that we take that should define Every aspect, every single aspect of a true believer's life. Now this certainly includes the things that we do corporately as the gathered body of the saints on Sunday morning. It includes things like singing, like praying as we did earlier, like partaking of the sacraments of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and, and uh, the, how you're doing now and giving your attention to the preaching of God's Word. But what I want you to understand, hopefully you will, is that it also includes things like the way we provide for and the way we raise our families, the way we represent Christ in the public arena with holiness and wisdom. All of that falls under the heading when right understood of worship. Now, because that is true, I want you to understand something that I hope will at least get your attention a little bit. Because that is true, that worship is an all-encompassing reality of our lives, that worship done inside the church with loud singing, with attentiveness to preaching, all of that can be absolutely nullified by a life that lacks worship outside the church. In other words, the Father is not impressed by the loudness and the, ex and the exuberance of your worship here if there's no worship out there. He says that in places like Isaiah chapter 1. Just when you get home, read that chapter and you'll understand how God feels about, about worship that's limited to his courts that doesn't go out into his world. Colossians 3.17 says this probably better than anywhere in the scriptures. Uh, Paul is encouraging the Colossians and he says, And whatever you do, whatever you do, we'll say it one more time, whatever you do, in word or in deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That tells me that every single activity of my life, every word spoken, should be done, if I'm a true believer, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and it should be done with a heart of thankfulness to God the Father. Every word, every action should be assessed by its value of worship to God. All of a believer's life should serve these purposes, to glorify and to give thanks to God. Because of this, we are never, ever, ever authorized to create unique ways of worshiping for ourselves. What happens when you create unique ways of worshiping yourself for yourself is you wind up with an equivalent of the golden calf. That's what they were doing. They, they departed from God's pre, uh, prescriptions for worship and they made their own way of worshiping him. They had, he had just said, you shall not make any graven image. And they said, gotcha, God, where's the gold? Let's make something for ourselves. But rather, instead of creating ways for ourselves, authorizing ways for ourselves to, to worship, the Bible defines what worship looks like. Now, this is something that has not escaped the notice of theologians, and they've given this term over the centuries to this idea. It's called the regulative principle of worship. And what that means is that the Bible regulates what, uh, what worship really is. It, it alone has the authority to regulate and prescribe the kind of worship that pleases God and the kind of which God approves. Now, some churches follow what's on the flip side of that coin, and that's called the normative principle of worship, which means that if the Bible doesn't strictly prohibit it, it's reasonable to include it into, into our worship. Now, we at Northridge Life Church, we don't ever want to become overly legalistic or ritualistic in our worship. But the normative principle, what I want you to understand, it opens the door to all kinds of abuses that do not please God. The normative principle can result in bizarre, charismatic experiences being not only promoted as normal, but also essential to worship. It can elevate things like skits and movie clips to a place of equal status with the written word of God preached from the pulpit, and it can turn singers into celebrities instead of servants of God. This is not a good thing. The regulative principle, on the other hand, tells us that we should worship God with joy and with thanksgiving and, yes, with sobriety, that we should be aware of what we're doing and not be casual in worship. It includes prohibitions on images and icons in our worship. It keeps us from praying to saints or praying to the dead. It gives us clear instructions on the administration of the sacraments. And, it, and, and most importantly, the regulative principle of worship by worshiping exactly as the Bible tells us to points our attention where it should be during worship straight to God. And that's the kind of worship we need. That's the kind of worship we should want. So turning to the Psalms and closely examining them like we're going to be doing in the next several weeks becomes very, very important because the Psalms constitute a major part of God's guidance to us about proper worship. They're filled with two things, reasons to worship and instructions for doing so. That, that's, that's what we need as people who are so often distracted by things that, that distract us. So regulative worship, when we talk about things uh, about the structure and, and adhering to the things that the Bible reveals as pleasing to God in worship, it isn't a religious burden. 
Instead, regulative worship is an absolute gift from God. Why do I say that? Because if we didn't have the Bible regulating our worship, we'd be left to our own imaginations to try to figure out how to approach God. And I don't know how aware of yourself you are. I'm very aware of my own self. I would be very ill-equipped to do that because I have a sinful heart. And so I need guidance. I need, I need something to regulate my worship. But God's biblical regulations for worship let us know something wonderful, something absolutely amazing, that just knowing this should cause your heart to want to worship. God's regulations for worship in the Bible let us know that He desires for us to draw near to Him, to enjoy His fellowship and experience His holiness. If He didn't want those things, He wouldn't have told you how to approach Him. But God desires for you to come near and experience Him. And He wants you to be able to do so without fear of incurring wrath for displeasing Him in your stumbling waywardness. Now, going back to these particular set of Psalms, in earlier days, if you have an older version of the Bible, like the King James, for example, these songs of ascents were also called gradual Psalms or songs of degrees. And, and the reason for that is that these Psalms are deeply connected with the idea of ascending, of, of, of ascending gradually and by degrees, step by step. There's an upward progression of thought in these 15 Psalms. Scholar William K. said a couple hundred years ago about these Psalms that they are a Jacob's ladder whose foot is fixed on earth, but the top reaches to the heavenly Jerusalem. Charles Spurgeon said also uh, that the language of these Psalms is fitted to describe the rising of the heart from the deepest grief to the highest delight. And I hope, my, my prayer for this series is that over the next several weeks, you and I are going to see this progression and that we will rise in our worship to a loftier place of communion with our God. And the idea of ascending, of songs of ascent, this idea of ascending points to more than just a progression of the spiritual life. Traditionally, these psalms were understood to be songs that Jewish pilgrims would sing on the journey to Jerusalem for feasts and sacrifices that God had prescribed in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 16 says this, verse 16, it says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose at the feast of unleavened bread at the feast of weeks and at the feast of booths and they shall not before appear before the lord empty-handed now when it talks about they will appear before the lord at the place where he where he chooses he they were on the journey there was no temple established yet in jerusalem and a few hundred years later solomon would build the temple in jerusalem and god would choose for his name and his glory to dwell there and so what he was saying were was that that three times a year the population would have to go up to Jerusalem to, to honor God with these feasts and festivals, and, and that would be the place that God chose. Now, as they approached Jerusalem, you got to understand Jerusalem is built on a hill. Well, the, the name of that hill is Mount Zion, and as they approached Jerusalem, they would ascend they get it, Song of Ascents, they would ascend to the hill of the Lord, Mount Zion, on which the temple was situated. And their songs would absolutely fill the air as they made their way up to the, up the mountain to meet with the Lord. Now, 
We don't know specifically when these songs, these, these psalms be, uh, began to be recognized as the preferred hymns for these travelers since they were written at different times across a long time period by different men. Uh, in fact, of the 15 of them, four were written by David. One was attributed to Solomon and 10 have unknown authors. Some of them, more of them could have been written to David, but that's a matter of dispute. Uh, over time, however, the important thing for our study is that all of these 15 songs were the songs designated as songs of ascent for that journey up to Jerusalem to the temple. And it's amazing. Again, you you may be yawning your way through all this information, but let's bring it into closer focus now and understand this, that, um, that there's something interesting about this. So we have 15 songs here and and we know of uh, times when Jesus himself when he was 12 with his parents to go to the Passover, when he was, uh, when he was, you know, on his way to the cross, he went for the Passover. And so can you imagine that these were the 15 songs that were on the lips of Jesus and his disciples that God had designated them for that purpose as, as God, the son traveled to the Passover. These are the songs he was singing. So if, if, God designated these songs for his own son to sing on the way to the Passover where he would be crucified for, for the, all believers. Don't you think it's important for us to understand them a little bit? It's pretty important, I think. So let's dive in. It's a long introduction, but let's dive into the psalm itself. Psalm 20, 120 verse 1 says this very simply. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with the Psalms because in the Psalms, there are a lot of complaining. Have you ever noticed that? There's a lot of sadness and lamenting and complaining. That is a reality of the Psalms. And let me tell you something, that's a good thing. Because it tells a story of real life. If it were all just fluffy, cotton candy, candy I don't know how to say that word, but well, cotton candy-like expressions of religious sentiment, it would be worthless to us. But we find in the Psalms men who are going through very real trouble, real trials. And this Psalm, this, this beginning of our ascent up to, to heavenly Jerusalem, these progressive psalms, the starting point is distress. The first three words, in my distress. And the Hebrew word for distress here can point to a whole range of, of words that are uncomfortable to us. It can point to trouble or affliction or adversity or anguish or tribulation or even to a specific adversary who causes all of these things. Now the psalmist here has known trouble. He's saying that. I had distress in my distress. And and we'll see this in a few verses that his trouble originates from a very real enemy. But we see this is the good part. This is where the gospel comes in. We see that his tribulation didn't get the best of him because he found a remedy. And that remedy was the fact that he cried. He called out to the Lord. 
And the Lord there, if you look at your scripture there in, in verse 1, the Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in your translation, it, it's, it's, a, it's a way for the Bible to express that, that when it says Lord, it literally means the, the name, Yahweh, the, the, the name of the most holy God, the sovereign God. It was the name that he gave to Moses when he said, I am that he am, I am that I am. And he's saying that, that his name is Yahweh. And he's saying, I called to Yahweh, the sovereign one. And the good news for you and I is that the sovereign one did not ignore his cries, but he heard them. And more than that, he answered. Now, listen, why does that matter to you? This is a long time ago. We don't even know when this was written a long time ago. But if you truly belong to Jesus, listen to me. This is your testimony. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Oh, and thank God he answered me. That's your testimony. Right there in one verse of the Bible, your whole testimony. There was a point in your life, if you are really a believer in Jesus, that the Holy Spirit caused you to see that because of sin, you were in distress. You were ruined. You were in very real trouble. And, and because of the grace of God, the working of the Holy Spirit, you realize that you could not rescue yourself from this distress, from this adversity. I sometimes meet people who talk and act as though they worked their way into the kingdom of God. And they're experiencing grace because of their moralistic credentials. They've done all the right things and never did any of the wrong ones. But listen to me, folks. That is not how salvation works. The Bible says that all of my righteous works, all of your righteous works are as filthy rags. See, salvation only belongs to those who are in distress. And in their distress, they abandon all hope in any of their own effort in any of their own ability, and they cry out to someone beyond themselves. And they depend on Christ's mercy and Christ's grace alone. It is only then when we are truly saved. And we're made righteous by the saving work of Jesus that He accomplished for us on the cross. But we cannot do that if with one hand we're holding on to our own effort and one hand trying to grasp Jesus. He will always escape your grasp if you're holding on to your own efforts. And our word for this is called justification. When I was a kid, and many, uh, uh, many of you probably had the same experience, and I'd go to Sunday school and children's church, the teachers, faithful teachers, would try to explain justification to me, and they would say that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. That God is regarding me through justification as if I'd never sinned. Uh, and, and that, but, and, uh, but it means so much more than that. It does mean that, but it means so much more than that. But, but see, if we... Imagine it to mean just as if I never sinned. That's great the moment I'm saved, but what about the sins I committed today? What about the sins I commit tomorrow? If it only means just as if I've never sinned, then I'm in big trouble, folks. Because if, if Jesus only wiped my slate clean, I'm going to just be real honest with you. I can dirty it up really, really fast. 
I can get it all marked up again. Am I the only one? Doesn't, doesn't take me long at all. But see, what justification means is that God regards us not, as on, not only as though we've never sinned, but as if we've fulfilled the law perfectly. And there's only one reason for this. It's because the Bible says that you and I now are not our own, but we're literally in Jesus Christ if we believed. And Jesus Christ, in whom we dwell has perfectly obeyed the law. And by grace, through faith, he assigns the merit of his perfect obedience to rascals like you and me. What a great message of hope that is. Hebrews 4.15, many of us know this scripture. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, most of the times growing up, as I've heard this, this message preached, the, the message was emphasized that Christ is sympathetic because he was tempted just like we are. He, he faced those temptations. And, and, and that, that was where the emphasis of the, the preaching of this verse was. And yet, I want you to know that the, the full impact of that verse is meaningless without the last part yet without sin. If the Bible just told me, hey, Jesus has faced everything uh, that you faced and he knows what it's like to trip and fall over his own fallen nature, Jesus would be of no use to us at all. It'd be worthless for us to trust in him because he'd be just as bad as we are. But here's the great message of the Bible. He was tempted. He faced all kinds of assaults from the enemy and yet he did it and walked out unscathed because he he did it without sin. And what one of us can say that? Not a single one who has ever been born after Adam. Nobody can say that. See, God doesn't just wipe our slate clean and expect us to keep it clean. He destroys the damning power of sin in us. And and more than that, he ejects the devil from the throne of our lives, the one who kept us enslaved to sin, and he becomes king himself. He takes the throne. He sits there and he rules and reigns in righteousness. Verse 2 says, Deliver me, Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Now, this verse is interesting. Though we are delivered from the damning and corrupting power of sin, we struggle to walk obediently. Now, don't raise your hands, but does anybody in this room struggle to walk obediently? And we often fall because we still live within sinful flesh, with sinful desires. And the psalmist, I want you to see this, what happens in these two verses, just verse 1 and 2. He begins by calling out for deliverance, and God answered him in the past tense. I called, he answered me, past tense. But now, what is he doing? He's making a present tense appeal to be rescued from lies and deceit. So if verse 1 shows our justification, verse 2 depicts our sanctification, which means that freed now from the power of sin, we long to be free from the daily influence of it. And we need help. Just like we need to be free from our initial distress, we need to be helped and rescued and delivered from the daily influence of it. In the psalmist's words, he wants to be delivered from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Why is that important? Because I want you to understand this. Every sin you have ever committed, every fault that lies within you, every one of them is rooted in a lie. 
every single thing. There is no exception to this. Now, there are other ways to sin besides lying, but there is no way to sin that does not involve a lie. Let me demonstrate. Sin tells you that things are going to make you happy that will actually kill you. Sin tells you that things are going to bring you joy. And more than that, bring you satisfaction that will soon break your heart and leave you hungry and thirsty and longing. Sin is a lie. The reason God hates sin so much is because it entraps you in a lie. God God wants you free. God wants you to flourish. God wants you to thrive. And sin just entraps you in a lie. And Jesus said... You'll remember this, that Satan is the father of lies. He's the author of lies. Jesus goes on to say that lying is his native tongue. We can prove that easily. Satan told Eve that that if if she would eat of the fruit, that she would be wise like God. She would become like God. But what actually happened was that all the generations of her children, including you and I, were plunged into darkness and they were given over to sickness and war, and jealousy, and strife, and death. And to be sanctified is to be increasingly delivered from the lie of sin by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's when He reveals the all-surpassing beauty of Christ and His kingdom. It's only then that we see the folly of sin in sharp contrast. When we're awakened by Christ's power, we increasingly desire the pure and we despise the corrupt. So we should diligently pray for ourselves and for others that none of us will be suckered by sin's charms and that we would see it by the power of the Holy Spirit for the illusion, the sleight of hand, the lie that it truly is. Paul tells us in Second Corinthians that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That this foul devil makes himself appear as beautiful as one of the servants around God's throne. So we learn from that passage that Satan has the power to make that which is most vile and most destructive appear to be the most beautiful and most beneficial. And so we have to pray to be delivered from his lies. Verse 3, What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now, so far, we've seen our justification in the past tense in verse 1 and our sanctification in the present tense in verse 2. Now, verses 3 and 4 tell us what the future holds. The psalmist looked to the liar, looked to the slander, looked to the deceiver, looked him right in the eyes, and he saw swift and fierce judgment coming to put an end to their false witness. From their sure destruction, from the destruction of the lying lips and the deceitful tongue, would rise the psalmist's glory, his deliverance, his vindication. And he sees them pierced with sharp arrows. What a picture of final judgment. There's a very similar verse in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations the liars, the deceivers, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
And then the, the psalmist sees the lyres burning in the glowing coals of a broom tree or a juniper tree. Now, this juniper tree is an interesting tree for, for what it does for, for folks. It, it has wood, it grows in the desert, has wood that ignites quickly. You don't have to use a whole box of matches to get it lit. It ignites quickly and it burns very, very, very hot. And more than that, it burns for a long, long, long time. What do you think that the psalmist is depicting here? Revelation 21 again, in verse 8, it says, As for all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, the psalmist probably had in mind actual slanderous enemies, actual people that had slandered him. But the Holy Spirit, by this verse, promises the end of not only troublesome sinners, but of sin itself. And the, and the glory for you who believe is this, that there's a day coming when you will no longer be deceived. Man, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You'll no longer be deceived. This is stated, of course, in the negative. It portrays the destruction of sin and those who've used their tongues for malice against the saints. But it's a great reminder to us who believe that things won't always be like this. That we won't be troubled by slanderous people and blasphemous people and lying politicians and all of that. We won't be, we won't be troubled by that. The world's economy will someday dramatically change. Dramatically the Bible calls this blessed time our glorification, the time of our glorification. And in that time, church, we will be freed from the slander of the one that the scriptures call the accuser of the brothers. All of our deceiving and enslaving lust. See, this isn't just external. This is also internal. In that moment of glorification, all of our deceiving and enslaving lust will forever be silent and made powerless. Man, I can't wait. And truth, the one who is truth, the one who said, I am the truth, will displace lies and he will forever reign. And judgment poured out on all lies will mean a freedom for us like we have never yet experienced. That day is coming. The day is coming where the things, like Paul talks about in Romans 7, the things that you hate that you wind up doing and the things you wish you would do that you never get around to doing, those things will be a reality now. They'll be, they will be delivered from that reality because judgment will be poured on all these lies and, and we'll have this freedom and all the storms caused by the accusations of the devil and the world and our own consciousness, our consciences will melt into perfect peace. No more troubled waters on the sea of our heart. Just like Jesus looked at the storm and said, peace be still. When he comes to judge all these lies, it's going to be peace be still to the souls of his faithful. Ah, I'm ready. I'm ready. So as we begin to journey with the faithful psalm singers who've trusted in Jesus and have set out from the city of destruction toward the heavenly Jerusalem, the the celestial city, we realize that we're not where we want to be. I, I got to be honest with you. I love you guys. I love the church. I love my family. I love the city. I love all, everything about my life. But this is not where I want to be. Given my ultimate choice, this isn't the best. 
I love it. I have no regrets. But this is not the best. The psalmist writes in verse 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, Meshach and Kedar, that may not mean a lot to you, but these were not the actual dwelling places of the psalmist who wrote this, as they were both far away from Israel and they were also far away from each other. Meshach was in Asia Minor to the north and Kedar was in Arabia to the south and west. These places were chosen as a symbol because they were hostile to the people of Israel. And so because of this great hostility, this warlike character of them, they were used as symbols of barbarism, as, of malice and of war. And the writer sees himself living in his distress against his desires, against his will in a place of conflict as he longs for the courts of God's temple where he is going. And all who believe, all of you who love Jesus and who have trusted Jesus, all of you are sojourners. You're, you're travelers just like the psalmist was. You're leaving your home place of distress and you're going somewhere different. We do not belong to this world. Paul wrote this to the Philippians to encourage them. He said, but our citizenship is in heaven. Man, I love that. I, I, you know, I have an ID card that says I live in Texas. I have a social security number that says I'm a citizen of the of, of, of the, the, the United States, but I have a book of life that says I'm actually a citizen of heaven. And someday my ID card, my social security number are going to burn up. But the book of life that says I'm a citizen of heaven will never, ever pass away. My name will never, ever be blotted out of that book. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. There's that glorification. And he'll do so by the power that enables him even to subject all things, all liars, to himself. See, this world is hostile to us. Jesus told us that. He promised it, in fact. He promised persecution to those who would follow him. He said that the world would hate us because we belonged to him. And, and, and more than that, he told us that they hated him way before they hated us. And so we, can we just cry with the psalmist, woe to us that we have to sojourn here when our heart isn't here at all. It's somewhere else. And we long to see and be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And Paul knew very well the tension this longing caused. Listen to his words, his dramatic words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. But yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is talking about tension here. His desire to serve the body of Christ 
and to love them and to, and to see fruit produced in them is pulling him towards this life. But his longing to be with Jesus and see Jesus is pulling him toward the next. And like the psalmist, all of our desires here, as we're living in that same tension, they're for peace for the nations. We want the nations, those who are hostile to us, we're not wanting to get away from them. We want them to know the Prince of Peace. And our reward for desiring their peace is oftentimes nothing more than mockery and hatred. So what are we to do? What do we do? We endure hardship. We pack our bags. We fill our mouths with songs of a sojourner. And we journey with our sacrifices of praise to the city of our God. That's what we do. And we do that through a life of surrendered worship. Psalm 27.4 describes this longing so much. One thing I have asked of the Lord. Some translations say one thing I have desired of the Lord. And that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. What David is saying in this psalm, he's saying, look, I'm on a journey and my eyes are toward where the Lord dwells, where his glory dwells. I want to get there. I want to live there all the days of my life. This world, listen, there's no way around it. The only way around it is by rejecting Christ. But if you are in Christ, this world will hate you. And you will never fit in because you are not of this world. So we might as well get moving. We might as well start ascending with songs on our lips. So I hope that you will join me. And today... Like never before, let us begin our ascent to the place where his glory dwells. And we go there by faith. We go there by obedience. We go there by surrender. But we go there as a life of worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I want to confess before those I love so much that so often, God, I'm not even aware of journeying. Sometimes I just want to pitch my tent right here and just stay for a little while and enjoy the the fruits of Babylon, God. And Lord, I I pray that you would, God, stir me and and let me see by the Spirit the, the heavenly Jerusalem that awaits in the courts of worship and God, I pray that I would, I would move towards, towards the place where your glory dwells, Lord, that I would ascend the hill of the Lord and I would, I would take my place among the faithful pilgrims who are going there to worship. God, I pray that it would be my longing. And Lord, I pray that you would allow me and, and those here with me to be faithful as we endure hardship, as we endure the world's... Uh, despising of us, Lord. I pray that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness and that we would, we would thrust ourselves 
in every word and every deed to be people who are giving thanks, who are glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper this morning. So if we could have our our helpers, uh, I don't know who we've got this morning, but if you'd come and help us, um, we are going to um, receive the supper. So if you would stand with me. In Reformed theology, which this church embraces, um, one of the thoughts of the Lord's Supper is that when we take the Lord's Supper, that the resurrected Jesus is really here with us. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would teach you that as you take these elements, that the bread actually becomes the body of the Lord Jesus within you and the the cup actually becomes the blood of the Lord Jesus within you. We do not teach that here. That's, That's a false doctrine. But what we do believe is that since Christ is resurrected and Christ is still fully God, fully man, and he is forever seated at the right hand of God, that we believe that the way that there's a mystery that occurs here, that the Holy Spirit, by faith, as we partake of this supper, takes us into the presence of the resurrected living Lord. And in that sense, Jesus is actually here with us when we take this supper. And so why am I telling you this now? Because this supper is a great glimpse of where you and I are going This is a great glimpse of the day when not just by a working, a mysterious working of the Holy Spirit, but when we will actually stand before our Savior who died and was risen for us. We will stand before him and the power of all lies will be gone. And so this morning I want you to think as you take the supper of the future. And I want you to imagine that that the Holy Spirit, not imagine because it's actually happening, that I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit is taking you to Jesus through the supper. And that, that that is a, it's a seal, it's a sign, it's a promise that in taking you to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit taking you to Jesus, that one day you will actually, in a resurrected, glorified body like his own, stand before him. So let's bow our heads and meditate on that for a moment. This is an important part of our journey of worship to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the celestial city. Let's pray. Lord, we're like the Greeks that came to you in John chapter 12, came to your disciples and said, we would see Jesus. Our desire, our longing, our hunger, our thirst is to see Jesus. And Lord, as we stand here in the state that we're in, we cannot see you with physical eyes. We can't see your physical body. We can't, we can't make out your form with the eyes that you've given us. But Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would work his miracle and that we would be taken to you, to your throne room, to, to be in your presence. And God, we pray that the these earthly things that you've given us, this bread and this cup, would serve as reminders to us, God, that a day is coming when the economy changes and when your glory fills the earth 
and your glory fills us and every lying tongue will be done away with, that they will be pierced with sharp arrows of a warrior and that they will be consumed with the burning coals of a juniper tree. And Lord, we will be free forever and we will see you and know you even as you really are, not the victims of our own imaginations, but our faith will become sight. And we thank you for this coming day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have trusted in him for your salvation, we want to invite you to come receive these elements. We'll take them back to our table, uh, to our seat rather, and, and take them together in a moment. But if you are here and you have not entrusted your life to the Lord Jesus, it is a dangerous thing to partake of this table. So don't do it. Don't do it. But don't stop there. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor David. Let us help you to understand how to trust your life to the Lord Jesus and to, and to turn away from your sin and follow him and, and make him your Lord. But for the rest of you, those of you who have trusted in the Lord, I want to invite you to come. Come take the elements and then return to your seat and we will we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul, by the Spirit of God, re- relays the words of institution that the Lord Jesus gave on the night uh, before his betrayal, he says, for I, passed, uh, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of your body, for the spilling of your blood, for the renewal of the covenant. We thank you, Lord, for the promise that it carries for us that you will come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to pronounce a benediction over you and we'll be dismissed. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.